everyone, and welcome to Greeley's Healthcare COVID-19 podcast. My name is Lisa Eddy. I'm a registered nurse, and I'm the compliance, one of the compliance practice advisory consultants. And today we will be discussing how hospitals and ambulatory centers can reinstitute elective surgeries amidst this COVID-19 challenge. A joint statement from the ARN, the college, the American College of Surgeons, American Society of Anesthesiologists, and the American Hospital Association was published recently discussing guidelines for reinstituting elective surgery. So uh, we were lucky to have with us today Shallon Allen, who's a registered nurse, a certified surgical services manager, and is our Greeley surgical consultant specialist with 20 years of experience in the perioperative area. Shallon has previously been an administrative director of perioperative services. She's been a speaker at many perioperative conferences, and she served on the Competency and Credentialing Institute Board for Perioperative Nursing, developing the Certified Surgical Services Manager credential and the CNOR test question. So I'm very happy to have her with us today. Shallon, um, I appreciate you being on the, on the line here. I know that you've been involved with this joint statement, and I just wanted to get your insights. So um, I, the very first thing I want to know is, when, I know everybody wants to know, when can hospitals begin performing elective surgical cases? And then what are the guidelines for that? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for inviting me to help you answer the questions. And first, the joint statement has several components to plan before performing elective surgical cases. Um, first, it's recommended that facilities should establish a COVID prioritization policy committee uh, consisting of surgery, anesthesia, and nursing leadership to develop a prioritization strategy appropriate to immediate patient needs and to the needs of the surgical volume. Um, the second item to consider before starting is timing, when to begin. It's recommended that there be a decline in the geographical area for at least 14 days before elective cases can be considered to begin. This means that elective cases may begin in different times in different areas based on the number of COVID cases in that area. It's also recommended to receive approval by the municipal, county, and state health authorities before beginning. Supplies and equipment, such as ventilators, ICU, and non-ICU beds, supplies, medications, anesthetics, and personnel must also be available for elective cases, as well as emergent and COVID cases before planning to begin elective surgical cases. Um, there's a third consideration before beginning, COVID testing. Is there availability? What is the turnaround time? What is the accuracy for testing? Are there guidelines established for COVID testing in the facility? And then the fourth consideration before beginning elective procedures is PPE. Does the facility have enough per personal protective equipment to care for the wave of current COVID patients? So will the facility have enough PPE to consider to take care of surgical cases that still have adequate supply for the COVID patients? And then is the facility prepared for a second wave of COVID patients regarding PPE and still perform elective cases? So there should probably be a team in the facility to collaborate the needs of the facility and the need for PPE among all the departments so that there's enough PPE for everyone. Thank you, Shellen. So I've had a number of clients tell me that they have just a tremendous backlog of elective surgical cases. So my question really is, tell me a little bit, if you don't mind, about what the statement recommends for prioritizing scheduling of the elective surgical cases, like who is going to do that prioritization? How does that work? If you could tell me about that, I'd appreciate it. 
Um, so there should be a team of anesthesia, surgeons, and nursing leadership together. Um, the same team that we used above to discuss establishing guidelines to begin elective surgery. Um, a list of previously canceled and postponed cases should be considered and scored in some way to plan for future surgeries before even beginning to schedule new elective cases. Some facilities are using the MENTS, it's M-E-N-T-S scoring system for objective prioritization. Uh, this system was published in the Journal of American College Surgeons. The system helps surgeons across the surgical specialties decide when to proceed with medically necessary operations in the face of resource constraints and with the COVID-19 pandemic. MENTS, M-E-N-T-S, stands for Medically Necessary Time Sensitive Prioritization. It was established just for COVID. Um, 21 factors related to outcome, risk of viral transmission to healthcare professionals, and the use of resources make up the scoring system. The higher the score, the greater risk of the patient, the higher the utilization of healthcare resources, and then the higher chance of viral exposure to the healthcare team. Before you schedule cases, a strategy for allotting day surgery or OR procedural time should be developed. For example, will time be allotted by block time or by the use of the prioritization instrument? Um, a strategy should also be developed for phasing the opening of the OR rooms. A capacity goal should be identified prior to resuming surgeries. For example, will the OR start at a 25% capacity? How many rooms can be opened? Will outpatients begin before inpatients? Will the OR procedural time be extended for longer than normal hours? And will weekend cases be scheduled cases or will they be used for emergencies only? All of those questions should be answered before starting the surgery schedule. It should also be decided who's going to be allowed in the OR. Are you gonna let medical device representatives in or students or will access be limited to surgery personnel only? Um, staffing should also be considered for the increased volume and hours. Staffing consideration should include surgery, anesthesia, nursing, housekeeping, engineering, sterile processing, et cetera, et cetera. Will adjunct personnel be available like pathology and radiology? Uh, facilities should also develop a social distancing policy for their staff, patients, and patient visitors in non-restricted areas in the facility that meet current recommendations. A decision about the number of visitors, if any, that accompany a patient to the facility should be established and given to patients before they arrive at the facility. Thank you, Shellen. That's uh, interesting information. I did not know about the MENTS uh, establishment for that, so I, I appreciate that detailed discussion. Now, I know you talked about that there would be COVID testing for uh, patients going in for electives. Is that, can you, is there any more detail on that that you want to talk about or just the fact that patients need to be tested? What's your take on that? So there's several things to consider when testing for COVID because there's a couple of different testing methods. So first, a facility should pick which testing method that they're going to use and implement it to the best, um, for the best safety for the patient. Testing requirements should include availability, accuracy, and current evidence. Um, regarding turnaround time and test results. So for patient testing, frequency and timing of the patient testing should be decided. Will all the patients be tested or will only selected patients be tested using a screening tool? Um, if there's not testing available, a policy that address evidence-based infection prevention techniques, access control, workflow and distancing process to create a safe environment should be created. 
if there's an uncertainty about a COVID patient's a patient's COVID-19 status, PPE appropriate for the clinical tasks should be provided to the entire perioperative team, as well as a plan for location in a designated area. For healthcare worker testing, there should be clear indications and access to the testing. There should be a process for the positive COVID worker to return to work based on current CDC guidelines. So in summary, the facility should have a plan in place about how they will respond to the COVID-19 positive worker, a response to the COVID-19 positive patient, whether they identify them preoperatively or they identify them postoperatively. They need a response for an employee under investigation for possible COVID, and then they need a response for a patient under investigation for COVID as well. Thank you, Shellen. That's, um, again, a lot of important information. The other question that I had, um, I know that there's guidelines for the precautions um, for all of the perioperative areas, the preoperative, intraop, and postoperative through discharge. So can, would you mind sort of discussing what the joint statement says about precautions and guidelines for those areas? Sure. I'm going to start in preoperative and then work our way through postoperative. I'm going to go through the steps. Um, first, a guideline for the preoperative assessment process should be developed. It is recommended that inpatients be pre-opt in the inpatient room and then brought directly to surgery instead of the pre-op area to minimize contact. Facilities need a way to delineate COVID versus non-COVID patients before pre-op, as we discussed in the testing, either the lab testing or screening tool. A COVID non-COVID area can be set up in the pre-op area if you have appropriate screening and a tool to be able to diagnose the presence of COVID first. If the patient is unknown for some reason, the patient should be treated with the appropriate distancing from other patients until the patient status is known. A reassessment of the patient health status of pre-op patients is still a requirement. A history and physical examination within 30 days per CMS is still required for all patients. This verifies that there, weren't any, there were no significant changes in the patient health status. The use of telemedicine as well as nurse practitioners and physician assistants can help in the pre-op evaluation. Face-to-face um, -face components can also help on the scheduled day of procedure, especially for healthier non-COVID patients to minimize contact. Um, surgical and anesthesia consents are still required for facility policy and state requirements. Um, lab and radiologic imaging procedures should be determined by patient indications and procedure needs. Testing and repeat testing without indication is discouraged right now. Um, an assessment of pre-op patient education classes versus remote instructions should be considered and given to the patient before they arrive to help limit contact as well. Um, surgeons should have advanced directive discussions with patients who are older, frail, or post-COVID before surgery. Um, and the need for post-acute care facility stay this should be addressed before the patient goes to the procedure. For example, where rehab will occur or what skilled nursing facility the patient's going to go to and transport plans should be included before the patient ever goes to surgery. If the patient is COVID, there should be a plan in place for how long the patient is symptom-free before transport. Um, interoperatively, so once the patient goes to surgery, it should be decided if there's a need to revise the pre-anesthesia or pre-surgical timeout components to include any facility-specific COVID precautions. Um, according to the CDC, NIOSH, and AORN, donning of PPE should incur, occur inside the OR. For the scrub team members, 
Respiratory protection and eye protection or a face shield should be donned outside of the room, but the sterile gown and gloves should be put on inside the room after the surgical hand antisepsis. This is the normal process. There should be clear guidelines for PPE use for the staff for COVID patients. Non-COVID patients will use the same standard regulatory requirements. Now, when you remove the PPE, this should occur inside the OR. But if you're wearing an N95 respirator, this should be left on and not removed until after you exit the OR and you close the OR room door. Um, and these are guidelines that can be found at the ARN website as well. If the patient is COVID, a guideline should be established for who will be present in the room during intubation and extubation of the patients because this procedure causes possible aerosolization of COVID. So some facilities are having the OR nurse and the scrub tech stay outside until after the patient is intubated and again outside after the patient is extubated. A guideline for non-essential personnel in the room, such as medical devices and students, should definitely be in place. So if you don't want non-essential people in the room for a COVID patient, that needs to be clearly identified and labeled in the OR room. Normal environmental cleaning is recommended after the case is over. The staff should have normal PPE for environmental cleaning. The only recommended difference is entering the room with or without a face mask after the case. So if the room is entered before the 15 to 20 required air exchanges, COVID could still be airborne from the procedure and appropriate face masks should be worn. If the air exchanges have occurred, no face mask is required to enter the room for housekeeping. The maintenance department, they can help you be able to advise how long it takes for the appropriate air exchanges to occur if you need that information. The CDC and AORN have recommendations for the OR air exchanges. Normal terminal cleaning should occur according to guidelines as well. Um, all equipment in the room should be cleaned and wiped down if a COVID patient or a suspected COVID patient was treated. Limited equipment and supplies should be in the COVID procedure rooms. Um, anesthesia machines that are returned from COVID and non-COVID ICU should have engineering test them and be cleaned thoroughly according to the manufacturer's instructions for use before being used on the next patient. Um, management of medical waste after a case for a COVID patient can be performed with routine procedures as outlined in the state and federal reg regulations. This includes laundry as well. There's no evidence for additional treatment according to most CDC recommendations. And so finally, after the case for transport personnel, the CDC recommend, recommends the use of a face mask by the transporter for anything more than brief encounter, encounters with a COVID-19 patient. The only time additional PPE, such as a gown or gloves, should be required is if there's an anticipation to move the medical assistance during transport for moving the patient or helping the patient remove a dislodged mask, or if aerosolization could possibly occur, such as you're bagging a patient on the way to a different unit. Um, so finally, for post-op patients, um, in the PACU, there should be standardized care protocols for reliability and potential of having different personnel in the unit. Standardized protocols are things like ERAS, they, e they optimize the length of stay efficiency and decrease complications. Um, COVID patients can be recovered in the OR or a specialized separate area in the PACU. Non-COVID patients and COVID patients need to be clearly identified and separated with a plan in place for staffing, as well including anesthesia and transport precautions. 
Um, the American Society of Anesthesiologists actually advises against bringing the COVID-19 patient to PACU. They prefer that the patient be recovered in the operating room with direct transport to an inpatient room or a discharge area. Um, again, appropriate PPE must be worn for extubation and breathing treatments in the post-op COVID patients. When discharging patients to a post-care facility or a PAC, uh, the facility should be aware that the COVID status of the patient and transport should be planned before the patient is sent to the PAC. Um, ideally, patients should be discharged home and not to a nursing home as higher risk of COVID may exist in those facilities. Okay, so Shallon, just to clarify that issue about air exchanges because it's a little um, different for different hospitals, the CDC has available a table that lists air exchanges and time factors and we, uh, ex we would encourage hospitals to review that so that they can calculate air exchanges and time um, to make sure that they're com complying with CDC regulations or requirements. Yes, the CDC has um, great information to help facilities with that information. So let me go forward and ask you yet another question uh, because one of the things I know we're gonna have surveyors when they're ready to get back into the institution, they're going to be looking to make sure that you've implemented your reinstitution of elective surgeries and then surgeries obviously well that you've given careful thought to it that it's a structured process you've involved as you said a multidisciplinary team that includes infection control and leadership and so forth um, so I, I would like to know does the statement talk about any recommendations for data collection or management so the facility should reevaluate and reassess policies and procedures frequently based on the newly released COVID-19 related data, resources, and testing. But the following needs to be collected. COVID-19 numbers, including testing numbers, positives, availability of inpatient and ICU beds, intubated COVID patients, OR procedural cases, new cases, death, healthcare worker positives, locations, tracking, isolation, and quarantines. Um, the facility number of beds, available PPE, ICU beds, and ventilator availability should also be tracked and recorded frequently. Quality of care metrics are still required, such as mortality, complications, readmissions, errors, and near misses as well. Thanks. That's what I was wondering in terms of what the statement had to say uh, for, you know, data collection related to COVID. So I appreciate that. So we know we will be looking to that to make sure that everything is safe and, and we're making prudent steps as we re-implement the elective surgeries. So uh, the last thing I'd like to ask you, Shallon, is do you, looking at the big picture and with your experience being, you know, directing ORs and so forth throughout your career, do you anticipate any additional COVID-related surgical considerations or what do you see in the future here? Uh, facilities may consider healthcare worker well-being. Conditions like post-traumatic stress and long work hours may impact the healthcare workers in the future. Many facilities have an EAP or an employee assistance program that they could recommend that may help. Facilities also need a way to communicate the constant ongoing changing of messages to the patients and visitors regarding the COVID crisis. 
facilities also need to be able to communicate the case scheduling process clearly to physicians and their teams so that everyone has the same understanding of what is occurring and what the changes are. Um, examples of communication to the surgeon teams are web pages with current changes listed. A blast email or faxes are really great help to help communicate all the different changes to the, all the different interdisciplinary teams that work within surgery. Okay, thank you for that, Shalyn. I'll just share with you that I know I've been working with some physician uh, clinics offices and they're starting, some states are starting to allow elective surgeries and interestingly, they've contacted patients who are not, we thought there'd be this huge rush to get back into surgery and we still right here as of uh, April 22nd, we still have patients it seems that are a little bit fearful of going back into the hospital environment. So I think we'll see this reopening, uh, reinstitution of elective surgeries sort of bit by bit as things start to open up and people start to feel more comfortable. But I really do appreciate you taking your time today and sharing with us that joint statement put out by um, all the various uh, uh, entities we talked about earlier, the American Hospital Association, um, ARN, and so forth. So Shalyn, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. And folks, you can um, take a look at this on Greeley.com. That's G-R-E-E-L-E-Y.com.